I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. podcast attempts to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. I am Claude Meyer-Guzer, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Daniel Doty. Hey, everybody. Um, Daniel, I want to start off by by thanking you a little bit. Uh, I'm a little trepidatious about heading into Chaucer and Mm -hmm. talking about this. Uh, Chaucer's one of those situations where uh, I know what I don't know. (laughs) that's the most frustrating thing. I'm not a Chaucerian. uh, I'm not a medievalist. I've dipped my toe into medievalism, but I know that there's not enough that I know about this to be absolutely competent with a deep dive. But uh, in our conversations, uh, you, you pointed out that we don't need to know everything. This is our quest and nobody else's. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Like it's, you know, we, uh, the, way, the way I feel about like the pro- – well, we, when we first started talking about the project, you know, I sort of thought to myself like, what, well, you know, what am I going to be able to offer? I am mere layman. Uh, but then I was like, you know what? No, it's, it's – you know, if what it's going to be about is us encountering these works, then let us encounter them. And, and we shall, we shall, we shall bring to the field what what, what we have. Um, but no, because I'm with you though, because one of the things that most like it, it has been, I guess, to sort of talk about my my personal history with the text. Uh, the last time I paid any real attention to the Canterbury Tales was in college, probably uh, like a like a world lit class, um, which is which is a bit of a shame because for for one, like I, I've had a long time sort of autodidactic interest in, in, in the middle ages and, and in, you know, medieval England in particular, probably because that's what's most accessible to me as an English speaker, honestly. But you know, that's, that's, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm largely monolingual and I will have to, that's my own struggle. Um, <laughs> but what was, and you mentioned like, you know, knowing enough to know that you don't know enough. Uh, what surprised me was just how just richly ironic and humorous the Canterbury Tales is, and any time I encounter that in a, in a text, in a centuries-old text, where like I'm seeing jokes, and I'm like, "Wow, this is really pithy and cool," I, I'm immediately struck by, "My God, there must be so many I'm just completely missing." <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it was interesting. Some of the, I did some some kinds of background research on the Canterbury Tales just to get a handle on 
what the criticism was like, where it had come from, where it went. Uh, I used the <laughs> the grad students version of Cliff's Notes, uh, mm-hmm. which is the the Cambridge Guide to, to Chaucer, um, and uh, that's that's the grad students version of Cliff Notes to anything, the Cambridge Guide to whatever. Actually- Hold on a second, Cambridge Guide, Cliff's Notes, <laughs> cheating at podcast. All right, continue, please. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but it's sort of um, they're pretty much compendiums of or compendia of major scholars writing on trends in the field and they always end with, okay, so what did Chaucer, they're, they're sort of like a chronological, um, a, towards the end of each one, there's kind of a chronological, okay, how was Chaucer treated in this time? Or, or how was the subject treated in this oh, time? Cool. How was he treated um, so like a, uh, in this time? And how is like he treated a, now? A historiography of critical appraisal. Yeah, in yeah, there's generally okay. one. And um, one of the things that <laughs> That sort of came out was there seemed to have been uh, some kind of like late 19th or early 20th century, as, as far as I could tell, I might be wrong about this, but there seemed to have been some kind of late 19th, early 20th century reading of Chaucer as a kind of naive poet in some ways who, hmm. you know, was straightforward transmitting uh, the actual events of the actual lives of people he met on a, a, a trip somewhere. And <laughs> one of the first uh, critical readings of him in the 20th century that, that really you know broke that down was sort of kind of saying, no, no, no. <laughs> right. That seems very, and again, may, maybe we're just coming at it with our, with our modern sensibility, but uh, that, that seems to say more about, well, as, as is ever the case, it says more about its own time than the work itself uh, in a lot of ways. But yeah, how could, how anyone could come away from Chaucer thinking that he was some sort of like naive, uh, naive in any sense, <laughs> because it's a very worldly, very richly aware kind of text. Oh, I, absolutely. I, that, that's, that's, a, a, that's very interesting to me that anyone could come away from it thinking that, you know, he's just some, some, uh, some well-meaning bumpkin. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess uh, we've kind of, um, you know, my, to to complement your own uh, initial reading, Mm -hmm. my first reading of Chaucer uh, was in undergrad in a kind of general, um, we had to take a a Britlet 1 and a Britlet 2 course as part of my undergraduate studies. Uh, And that's where I first came across Chaucer. And I was just, I was struck by it. I'd always been told, um, by my dad, who also, I mean, this is kind of surprising. My dad was an accountant. My dad was a businessman. But uh, when he was in college, the, the humanities were still taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so he had to take a, a, a class on foundations of English literature, and he'd read Chaucer. And he wouldn't tell me what, but he would always tell me that, you know, this is, this is filthy stuff. <laughs> Which just made it that much more enticing. When right, right. Got to, when I finally got to undergrad myself, uh, he, he was right. He was right. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that was sort of where I first uh, encountered it and how I first thought about it. And then, you know, diving into it and actually reading and seeing the richness of it really, really did strike me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was sort of fascinated uh, in my first reading by trying to suss out um, allegorical medieval structures because I came to Chaucer after having read Dante. Mm. And Dante is all about allegorical structures and what this means, what this means. Mm-hmm. But there's something a little more vivid. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the the problem of translation. Mm-hmm. I can't read Dante in the Italian, but um, 
there's something more vivid. There, there absolutely is something more vivid about the characters and the characterization in Chaucer. Yeah, that, and that might lead us right into the prologue. Exactly. Yeah, because the prologue, I guess, to say a little bit about kind of the the structure of the whole thing, and and I guess to make a to make a mention about translation, um, it's it's composed in, in Middle English, uh, sort of right right smack in the in. This this was around the time that English was actually emerging. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a strange thing to say because we hear like the term old English, but old old English and and modern English as we speak it, there's a there's a big break uh, mm-hmm. in in between those, and th- and that big break is the Norman invasion and the introduction of uh, uh, Norman French um, right. into uh, into Great Britain, and that was also like a uh, it also eclipsed English as anything like uh, an official language, like basically like. English as was spoken by the proles and you know, anyone who was anybody was speaking French or even you know Latin casually, and so uh, it was not a prestige language at all. Right, right. And Chaucer, when Chaucer's writing, it's just beginning to reemerge as a language that you could actually do things other than ask like, "Well, have you brought the pigs in from eating the acorns in the forest yet?" You know, it was it was just <laughs> it was reemerging as a language that was worth being written down and so it's a little so it's a lot but it was very interesting because it's a lot closer to like you can take a look say beowulf uh in the original old english and you can pick out words here and there that are clearly like oh that's you know that's that's a word that i recognize but it's gobbledygook when you try to read it right and chaucer is in middle is kind of middle english which is still pretty gobbledygooky when you just sit down and, and start trying to look at it it's a little better when you sound it out um, right. but it's also like, I mean, the idioms are, are very different and all that. So mm-hmm. for, for me, I, I ended up, I, I was going to try to power through dude and I was going to try to read it in the original, but I, I had to, 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 I had to read it in, in translation to, to get kind of the semantic content. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. but what's, what's cool with Chaucer is that the, the actual original language itself is, uh, you know, if you have an idea of what this part is supposed to be saying, you can read the middle English and it comes through the, what comes through is the rhythm. Like it is right. a poem. Yeah. But we're going to be reading it in translation to modern English, so it loses a little bit of the, the rhythm and the sound. But it's uh, it, it's very impressive just as a kind of – it has a very lyrical quality to it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, stru- the structure itself is also interesting as a, as, as a poem because yeah. it's, it's very clearly uh, – I guess any, anyone interested enough in literature to give us a shot on this podcast has probably heard of the Decameron, the – uh, the Italian poem, or rather Italian sort of uh, story collection by uh, Boccaccio. Right. And it, so the conceit in that, that Chaucer follows is that what he's doing is sort of sets up where he's a guy who meets... <laughs> it's, it's the classic Dungeons & Dragons setup. You all meet in a tavern. <laughs> but you, you meet your party in the tavern. And so the first part of the poem is actually introducing this party who's going to be traveling, and we should say, to Canterbury Cathedral. Because this right. is the Middle Ages, and mm-hmm. where they're going on pilgrimage, they're going to go to right. the famous shrine of uh, Saint Thomas of Becket uh, in Canterbury in England, and you travel together because that's you know safer to do on the on the highways, and also because hey, you know it's, it's good to have company on the road, uh, and and so this is this is a, a sort of an instance of uh, this is a very true phenomenon. You would have these impromptu groups would form because mm-hmm. they're traveling, their pilgrims traveling to the same uh, holy sites. Um, so the prologue is Chaucer. 
well, we, we presume Chaucer. I don't think is the is the is the narrator point of view character ever named in the poem. I'm I. <clears throat> one more time. I'm ignorant. I cannot recall. <laughs> okay. I, I know our innkeeper is Harry Bailey. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's just assumed that it's Chaucer Pilgrim. Sure. Yeah. We can. Yeah, we can just. We'll, we'll just call it Chaucer. The Let's sort of the point of view it's guy. A yeah. Pragmatic shorthand. <laughs> yeah, they, we're, we're nothing if not pragmatic. <laughs> right. Okay, I, I'm much better at Dante. When we get to Dante, I will sound like less of a goon. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> I, will, I will sound like just as much of a goon. Don't worry, guys. All right, so like you said, it's a classic Dungeons & Dragons setup. I never really <laughs> thought about it that way, but it is. Uh, they meet in a tavern. Um, the the There's a general rundown of every character in the, the the poem, sort of. These are all the travelers. These are everybody we meet. Uh, some are treated much more ironically. Some aren't treated as ironically. If you're looking for uh, a kind of good guy, I suppose, it would be the, the, the poor parson. Mm-hmm. But you have lots of bad guys. <laughs> um, it's, it's true. Like, it's, it's a very, like, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's, like, verging on anti-clericalism, yeah. Uh, or I'm sorry, I, I guess to say it's very nakedly anti-clerical yeah. for a lot of the characters, but not all of them. So it's not, yeah. so that's why I mean like it kind of verges on total anti-clericalism. But like you said, the poor parson is a, is a good guy mm-hmm. to sort of counter the, you know, the, the, the corrupt and vain prioress and the just abominably uh, <laughs> awful pardon peddler who we'll, we'll talk in a little more detail about oh, later. Oh my God. But yeah, it's, it's, it's this interesting prologue, and it's it's a rundown. We were talking about this earlier. It, it's on the one hand, this is a rich, rich characterization. The, mm-hmm. These characters do seem to sort of jump off the page. And to go back to you know our the the source of our quest here, um, that's one thing that Bloom really emphasizes in his chapter on Chaucer, or the the thing that he's really pointing to. He wants to claim that Chaucer is some kind of initial. Um, moment where we can see three-dimensional characters or self-consciousness mm-hmm. and I, I can point to a couple of places that that you know sort of back that up but um at the same time there's still types you know there's still sort of stereotypes there's still sort of generic characters in certain kind of ways and they they straddle that line between um characterization between three-dimensionality and between a kind of cartoon character the same way we, mm-hmm. we were talking about the knight that was something that I kind of wanted you to get into. We sure, have a knight yeah. on the quest, or, or we have a knight on the pilgrimage, and what exactly is he doing, Daniel? Yeah, so the, the knight's an interesting character, just because, like, I, I mean, when, when you get down to it, this is, uh, I think it was the 1380s when yeah. the, the work was first published. Um, and so this, just sort of set a little more, I guess, a little more historical context, this would have been about a generation after the Black Death. Yeah. Um, which had wrought tremendous changes to all of Europe and, and, and to, to England also. Um, and rather England a little more sort of forcefully than, than a lot of places in Europe. Mm. Um, because you had a massive, you know, you had a massive culling of the population. I mean, d- depending on what town you're looking at, somewhere between a quarter to even half of the people just up mm. and died over the space of a couple of years. And so there's this massive demographic collapse. This is about a generation on. And a lot of the kind of the old certainties have been eroded a bit because what you see, and this is, this is, this is up to debate 
as all things are in history. But the sort of the general interpretation is that the demographic collapse led to a massive increase in the sort of economic power of the common people. Right. Because all of a sudden you still had, you know, the Lords still had a lot of work that needed to be done. Uh, but all of a sudden there weren't as many people available to do that work. So the people who were left could demand a better deal. Um, right. And which is, you know, the economic history as, as we can, as we can suss it out, sort of, sort of bears this out. This is kind of a, this is a, a blossoming of a kind of what we, this is sort of a golden age of what we might call the petty bourgeoisie, sort of yeah. the the, yeah. the the lower burgomeister class, and also the the peasants are doing a little better. Um, <clears throat> they have a little better share in all this, but it's still medieval times, man. So it is still <laughs> it is it is still uh, feudal times, and it is still a time when the heavily armored mounted knight was the be all end all in military technology, and also was the sort of the uh the class in the cockpit for mm. uh the sort of political economy we might even call it but anyway uh, not to get too bogged <laughs> down in the political economy of feudalism that's no, okay Keep uh, going. so the night yes so the night <laughs> is introduced and of course when it comes to like archetypes in medieval literature i mean the the night is what we all think of i mean you, you read right. these like these medieval romances they're all about the knight capital t capital k um and and as such like it, it it suffers for sort of personality in a lot of ways and, and chaucer's knight is kind of similar like he's he's basically presented as this kind of ideal paladin this ideal holy warrior quite literally an ideal holy warrior because he is listed as sort of his his rundown of where he's fought <laughs> is a, a rundown of all of the basically like the sort of the crisis points on the borders of christendom that we sort of lump under the term crusades. Um, as I mentioned, I haven't pulled up that he is, uh, he was there when Alexandria fell, um, and which, you know, I can't even remember which, uh, crusade would have won Alexandria in Egypt to begin with. Probably, I think the fifth was St. Louis. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, he's fought in every nation, even in far off Prussia. He's fought in Lithuania and in Russia. Uh, he fought in the, the Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula. He fought in Granada. Uh, he fought on the Moorish shores. He's ridden to IS in distant Armenian wars. So this would have been, it was today, <laughs> Eastern Turkey. And, and while a knight at the time would have, you know, would have been expected to, uh, to, to travel and, and, and do service in some of these conflicts and whatnot, it's, it's a little hard to swallow that one man <laughs> managed to find himself at, at every corner of the ver of the various crusades going on, you know, in the, in the pagan northwest, the pagan Baltic Sea, in the in 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 the Iberian Peninsula, in the in the you know in the Near East, um, and and more than anything, I think that's I, I guess that's there to, I mean, for one, it's an interesting catalog of where people at the time would have thought, uh, you know, th this is where the where God's wars are being fought in, in these right. places. Um, which is in itself, you know, interesting. And, and also, I mean, any, any of those places I just mentioned, really any of those crusades, please go read more. They're fascinating. <laughs> um, like the crusades aren't all about Richard the Lionheart and Saladin, although those guys are great too. Uh, but, but, the, but yeah, the, the knight is, uh, he's accompanied by a squire, uh, who is, has, has also had quite a career. I mean, he, he's been over across the English Channel in, uh, Flanders, Artois, and Picardy. And that's a little more believable because at this time, this would have, the sort of the military class in England would have been very closely tied to the holdings that the various 
you know, the kings of England and the great dukes would have had in France, what we know today is France as well. This was the time of the Hundred Years' War, uh, that great struggle between the crown of France and the crown of England over who was king of whom and where, and that kind of stuff. And so that's a little more believable that the squire, young as he is, he's been on a few campaigns. Um, and, and, it, and it's very, uh, but those are, those are probably the most cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's interesting that it's those two characters who are the most archetypal because they are also kind of the most, I don't know, politically sensitive, except mm-hmm. for, except for the church people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's interesting that Chaucer takes a lot more chances with poking fun or subverting churchmen than he does with the kind <laughs> of secular authorities that, that he sure. encounters. But, but yeah, yeah. And the, and the, the churchmen are, are, are interesting as well. We were, we were talking a little bit before the record about how in these characterizations in the prologue, um, the Chaucer verges on anti-clericalism, right. but he doesn't wholeheartedly commit because some of the, you know, the church people who are on this pilgrimage are good and decent. Like uh, you specifically said, like the, the poor parson, yeah. um, there's a, there's a cleric who's, who's is, is at least like anodyne. <laughs> you know? yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's okay. The, the, if you're looking for, for a bad guy here, if you're, if you're looking for a great villain and you know, the, the middle ages often, you know, embraced their villains. Uh, the running joke was everyone wanted to be Herod in the mystery plays because he got to chew the scenery. Right. You know? <laughs> um, but if you're looking for that, you, you'd have to look at the partner. Mm-hmm. And, and the partner opens up this, this it, you, you can kind of put them at poles. You've got the parson on one hand who's very sincere, very to the point, just a country parson who basically says, um, you know, if, if the <laughs> – there's a great, a great line. For if a priest be foul on whom we trust, no wonder is a lewd man to rust. And shame it is if a priest take keep a shite and shepherd and a clean sheep. So how can you have a a beshitted shepherd and keep the sheep clean? Um, Just I love the vulgarity of the the original. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know the the parson is completely you know honest, and on the other hand, we have the partner who is completely dishonest. Uh, he's honest in his dishonesty, which I guess is the, the paradox there. <laughs> yeah, he can't yeah. stop himself. Uh, but he, there, there's a nihilism to him. You know, I think Bloom points this out. And I, I can see it. the more I read uh, or the more I look over the partner, the more I see Satan. Uh, mm-hmm. Milton's, Milton's Satan or, or someone like Iago. Uh, you know, one more time, I'm relying on Bloom again. But there is that nihilistic streak back there. Um, but what he, he's, he's definitely, uh, he's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's the most corrupt and he's the one that, that's really kind of frightening in, in what he does, or at least he frightens me, but th- <laughs> there's, there's this weirdness going on there because the partner is an honest liar. All right. If yeah. that makes sense, it's that paradox of, of, you know, the liar who tells you I'm always lying. So what right, do you do right. with that? 
Um, <clears throat> there's this, there's something going on that I haven't quite worked out for myself within the prologue, which has to do with uh, lying and truth. Now, the whole structure of, of the Canterbury Tales, and, and one more time, this is why I'm frustrated, because we're just focusing on the Miller's Tale, the general prologue, the Miller's Prologue and Tale, the Partner's Tale, and the Wife of Bath. And the whole Canterbury Tales, um, it ends kind of on a dud because essentially the parson steps up and they say, why don't you tell a story? And he's like, no, these stories are awful and terrible. This whole endeavor is unholy. Let me give you a sermon. <laughs> he gives this long sermon. And at the end of which, um, if I remember correctly, and more time, I'm not quite sure that I do, but if I remember correctly, at the end of it, uh, he, he basically asks, now who would like to step up here and... Um, be confessed or take uh, 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 what what exactly happens. He basically asks if anyone would like to step up and be blessed. Right, right. And the only person who steps up is Chaucer Pilgrim, mm-hmm. like the, the narrator. And then he renounces the whole endeavor. Mm-hmm. So there's this question <laughs> within the Canterbury Tales about what is what is the justification for for making this or 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 is it just enough to be entertaining there seems to be this other kind of pressure about the the moral aspect of the tales uh the most moralistic tale is told by the partner Mm -hmm. um and that's a grim grim statement (laughs) but uh but there's there's this moment, and, and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And, and this is what bugs me. Uh, there's a moment where where the pilgrim is he interrupts the 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 prologue to basically make claims for truth. And this gets back to this weirdness that we have about you know how how characterized or, or, or how rich the characterization is. At the same time as there's still types, he says. Um, but first I pray you of your courtesy that you narrate it not my villainy, though that I plainly speak in this matter, to tell you her words and her cheer, uh, nay, though I speak her words properly, for this you know and is uh, also well as I. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do the Middle English. I'm right. doing it as, and as thank well you. as I can. Uh, whoso shall tell a tale after a man, he moot rehearse it as near as ever he can. Ever it's a word, if it be in his charge, all speaking never so rudely and large. Uh, he's basically offering an apology for for speaking so frankly and speaking so bluntly, right? So he's saying, look, I have to present all of these characters exactly as I saw them, even though he never saw them. Mm-hmm. So um, he gets to this end. Uh, or else he moot tell his tale untrue or feign thing or find words new. Uh, he may not spare, although he were his brother, he would as well say a word as another. Um, even if he's saying the truth about his brother, he has to say exactly what he means. Mm-hmm. Christ spec himself full broad and holy writ, and well you woot, no villainy is it. Well, Jesus spoke the truth, <laughs> and there's yeah. nothing wrong about that. Eke Plato saith, whoso can him read, these words won't be cousin to the deed. Um, Plato saith, uh, if you can read it, then you have to read it accurately. You have to transmit it accurately. Also, I pray you to forgive it me. All have I not set folk in her degree here in this tale as they sh- uh, as that they shall understand her. My wit is short. You may well understand it. Um, okay, so listen, I'm telling you everything as it truly is, okay? So I'm telling you about all of these characters exactly as I saw them and met them. 
Because Jesus said we have to say everything exactly truthfully, and Jesus told the truth all the time. And Plato said <laughs> we have to say everything truthfully, and Plato told the truth all the time. And look, I'm messing it up a little bit because I didn't present everybody uh, by their right rank as they should have been, but I'm kind of dumb sometimes, so just forgive me. Okay, all of this <laughs> within, you know, this is, this is what I'm saying. There's a tension here because yeah. all of this, look, I'm saying it exactly as it is. I'm just just like Jesus. I'm just like Plato. I mean, there, there's something weird going on there that I don't have the brains or the, the familiarity with Chaucer to suss out. Right. But there's this real tension between I have to tell everything exactly as it is, even though I'm self-consciously telling you a lie. Right. And I, and I think you it's know? that uh, – and it might be that kind of that, – that kind of tension that comes with a lot of fictional presentation wherein – Look, I'm trying to get at the truth of the matter, and to do so, I'm going to have to tell you some things that didn't happen. Yeah, you know, because that's and it is it is interesting. I I, I guess I spoke too soon when I said that uh, Chaucer was a little less, a little more reticent to poke fun at the secular authorities than the church authorities because I, I remembered I was actually I was looking at my table of contents to to remember all the figures who were introduced, and uh, in the prologue he he does go, uh, there is a, a lengthy description of the steward. Who would have yeah. been like this is a basically a a, uh, a property manager for a great lord, and so he would have been almost sort of on borrowed greatness from a great <laughs> lord, but but himself also would have been like a very respectable type. But he's mm -hmm. he's presented as a as a completely like you know a, a just a just a hard ass cheapskate sque <laughs> squeezing everything he can out of all the tenants on the on the farm while living a grand life himself. Exactly, and, and it's borrowed grandness, and that just yeah. makes it all the more sort of chintzy. Um, <laughs> which is, and again, that's a wonderful like. That's an example, I think, of the you know he's he's clearly you know Chaucer's clearly de dealing in a type, you know, the, sort mm -hmm. of the miserly steward. But it, he he sort of he he tweaks it to make it a little more colorful and personal when he talks about like the steward's own like the, the way he dresses, you know, yeah. and and the way and having this very fine eye for detail. Like uh, I think one of my favorite details. Um, and I actually, I recalled this from, that was one of the few things I really held onto when I, from when I first read the, the tales in, uh, when, you know, when I was an undergrad or in high school and an undergrad, um, the, uh, the prioress, uh, or the, or, uh -huh. the, or, uh, let's see the, uh, is it the prioress or the nun? Are they the same character? I, I get it mixed up. <laughs> I think the prioress is a nun. Right, right. The prior, okay. Well, let's, let's go with the, the prioress. Anyway, the, the nun who's like a head of a nunnery, you know, she's yeah. the prioress of a, of, of an abbey. Um, and so she, who, who herself is sort of, she's described in this, in these ironic terms about her humility as a nun and whatnot. But then it's very clear that she goes out of her way to dress very sumptuously, that she has very, very assiduously cultivated, uh, these sort of, uh, cosmopolitan manners these, mm -hmm. these kinds, she's very concerned about, uh, presenting herself in the, in the most highfalutin way possible, if I might use a, uh, yeah. uh, a term such as that. And one of one of the the interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, ways that Chaucer gets this across is by saying that you can you never did see a grease stain on her wine cup nor any bits floating in it, which yeah. <laughs> which, was, which I was thinking like okay like I'm not really all that fastidious a dude but even I managed not to get bits of food in my wine cups when I when I'm having a dinner and it sort of brings like huh this this is kind of rough around the edges kind of people still in the in the yeah. edges, perhaps like if that's noticeably fancy of you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. So, 
bring it up rough around the edges. Let's just dive into the <laughs> yeah. Miller's Tale for five seconds. Sure. Um, we start off, you know, the 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 idea is that they're all going to tell tales as they they make their way to Canterbury, and whoever gets the best tale, the innkeeper is going to give them a meal. They're all going to pitch in, mm-hmm. and they're going to give like a giant feast to whoever tells the best tale. So the innkeeper, uh, who later is named Harry Bailey. Uh, accompanies them and the knight starts off the first tale and tells this tale of chivalric love and immediately afterwards we have the miller interrupting they're supposed to go by degree right they're supposed yeah, to yeah. go by, by, by hierarchy and the miller interrupts with this body tale about um, uh, <laughs> a man whose wife he, he marries a much younger wife and he's oblivious that she is taken up with the student who's renting a room from him who is more interested in astrology than anything else. And then the, the idea is that he's interested in astrology to try to make money. Um, so the wife uh, is having a fling with the astrologer student and they're trying to get the husband out of the way so that they can you know do what they want to do. Uh, so they come up the, the student comes up with a scheme to convince the husband that Noah's flood is about to happen again. He's had a vision through his astrological readings. And uh, what they need to do is hang three tubs from the rafters of the house so that when the flood comes, they'll be able to float away in their own little boats, the student, the the man's wife, and the man, the carpenter. So <laughs> they convince the carpenter to do that. He hangs uh, the boats up. He goes and gets into his boat, and the two others pretend to get into their boats, but then sneak off on their own to have their fun. And in the meantime, the wife has been courted by this uh, dude who sings very well, who she does not like, and he's a pest and a nuisance. And while she's trying to have sex with her student, uh, this cleric comes up trying to sing her a song, is about to interrupt everything and wake up the, the husband. So she tells him she's going to give him a kiss if he just comes up to the window. Uh, and that'll shut him up and, and send him away. She sticks her ass out the window, and um, he kisses what Chaucer calls her nether yay. All right. Uh, no, this is, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what that is. Um, all right. I know generally what that is, but the question for me is, uh, you know, I, we're, we're going to get into the, the, the grossness here. Um, uh, Absalon... Um, <clears throat> okay, Absalon is the name of this would-be paramour. This Absalon gave the wipe his mouthful dry. Dirk was the night as pitch, or as the coal. And at the window she output her hole. And Absalon him fell no bet no worse. But with his mouth he kissed her naked erse, full savorly, ere he was war of this. A back he sturta, and thought it was amiss, for well he wista well he wista, a woman hath no beard. He felt a thing all rough and long he heard, and oh. said, Fie, alas, what I what have I to do? So y- he's, Yikes. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's tipped off because of the fact that women have no beards. Uh, she put her hole out the window. Um yeah, this is Chaucer at his most vulgar. Yeah. And you know, this is this is what we're talking about. On the one hand, you've got the the irony, you've got the richness of the characterization. On the other hand, you've got the the real roughness of the culture, and he's he's drawing not just from 
Boccaccio's Decameron. He knew mm-hmm. the Decameron. Um, he also knew Dante, uh, not personally, but he knew uh, of of the work, the, yeah. the poem, yeah, the work. And um, <clears throat> there's uh, are, there are rich allegorical structures running throughout the Miller's Tale, having to do with the flood, having to do with um, the sins of, I think it's lust, avarice, and. Uh, there's another one. There's a morality tale running through it, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, drawing from the tradition of the French uh, fabliaux, which are just nasty, filthy tales full of misdeeds <laughs> told vulgarly. Right. And um, this this is one of those. So, I mean, okay, I, I don't want to dwell on the vulgarity of Chaucer, but I love it, and I love that it's mm-hmm. there because it, it it gives you that full sense of of the culture. What? <laughs> right. And, what and which saying? which is itself, I think. Uh, uh, you know, and I don't know. Maybe this was intentional to have the most vulgar tale and tale teller interrupt the noble knight. No, it, and, it absolutely was right. And and that's and and I think that there's uh, you know in, in that kind of that as as we were talking about that post Black Death sort of rise of the common folk kind of you know the, the, the all these types of people i think are in much closer proximity with one another than they would have been say during the high middle ages this period right. is the late middle ages and the high middle ages right. when the uh sort of the estates were much more well established you know mm-hmm. like you had the, you know those who fight those who work and those who pray and, and never the twain shall meet <laughs> um, and uh but yeah so it, it's but i think it's it's very uh, yeah it, it must have been intentional on chaucer's part that like in the midst of this almost uh, this kind of economic revolution, almost like he would have been aware, like this was only in the space of a generation. Everyone would have known, like eh, things didn't used to be this way. Where you could <laughs> you could interrupt a knight like that. Um, well, well, yeah, but, and yeah. the knights the knights is a classic tale of chivalric love, and right. uh, <laughs> and then we have the 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 Miller's tale of adultery and filthiness. So it's yeah, yeah it's it's very much a, a counterpoint to to what that is or, or to what the night's And this was. um and I, and I guess I I meant to mention earlier uh to sort of set some more of that context. This would have been this would have been uh written a few years after what's known as the Great uh, Peasants Revolt of 1381. Yeah. Um which is I, which I think has a lot of bearing on this kind of the the chutzpah a lot of the lower <laughs> orders are feeling because they, they it was it was not as successful as they hoped but they did succeed in 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 like terrifying the king and all of the grandees there for right. you know for a few weeks but uh, <laughs> but yes but yeah and again yeah not to not to dwell on that on on the vulgarity but it's but it's there and, and not just in the miller's tale although that is the most sort of famous example of it right right you know? well okay so there's we're talking about the vulgarity, and that's, I guess, our, our segue, because I want to talk about a, a particularly nasty bit of business with the partner. You know, I don't want to dwell on the Miller's Tale, but I wanted to read it and go over it a little bit, just because it is, you know, it's it's it was my introduction to Chaucer, my introduction to just how, you know, wild and crazy uh, yeah. Chaucer can be. But uh, that gets us to the partner, and, um, I, you know, I, I, I think we can agree. He's the ballless bully. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the aspects of the partner that's, uh, you know, Chaucer's really playing up. And this gets back to the idea that these are, are types just as much as their, you know, full characterizations. Um, in the general prologue, the, the partner, <coughs> excuse me, is described, um, this partner had a hair as yellow as wax, but smooth it hung as, as do the strike of flex. 
By ounces hang his locks that he had a, and therewith he his shoulders oversprata. But thin it lay by Colpons unanon, but hood for jollity where he noon, for it was trussed up in his wallet. Him thought to he rude all of the new jet, dishevelled save his cap, he rude all bare. Swish glaring eyen had he as a hair, a vertical had he sewed on his cap, his wallet lay before him in his lap. Um, to get back to medieval allegory, uh, the obvious thing going on there, uh, we find out later um, that he's a castrato. He he and the summoner are are singing together. He's taking the high parts. The summoner's taking the low parts. The summoner plays bass. Uh, the partner sings the castrato parts. And the the idea is that he's um, he's a eunuch. Uh, one of the things that Chaucer points out is he had his wallet in his lap. His wallet is going to be the source of his generation or, or whatever that is. And I, it, in medieval allegory, that would have been a corruption of the body and God's will. Um, your source of generation should be your source of generation. And right, his source right. of generation is um, monetary. Yeah. Right? There's something, I, I guess, in, in medieval terms, unnatural about that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so he's he comes across as a beautiful figure. You can be seduced by him and seduced by his looks. And this is what I mean, that there's something satanic about him. Uh, yeah. He's the most beautiful of the, the characters. He's got this long flowing hair. He sings so well. He can draw you into uh, his stories. He can charismatically draw you into what he's doing, but he'll tell you up front that what he's doing is trying to con you, cheat you, and send you straight to hell. Well, exactly. And I guess we can take a if, – if you don't mind, I can take a moment to explain just what exactly this man's profession is. Please. Um, because it's a deeply medieval kind of profession. Um, but the pardon peddler uh, – and this is – this gets in – Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He's a really interesting character uh, in all this uh, trust and uh, as 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 a as, as someone to examine. Um, but uh, in in, the, in this day and age, of course, this is uh, this is the before the Reformation. Although well, I'll, I'll get into later, some, uh, some there might be some rumblings. Um, but the the pardons being sold were ostensibly. Uh, the idea was that in, in, if the church needed to raise some money in order to, usually it would be like, say, build a new cathedral or raise money to, to support a crusade. 
you know, we could we could send some money to go help the the Teutonic Knights in their quest to, you know, to Christianize those horrible pagan Lithuanians, for instance. Mm. Um, but this would have been this, these these would have been sort of pardons issued to be sold by the church in for a specific purpose. And what is the pardon? Well, it's it would be you could pay out some money to the church in order to avoid the temporal penance you would you would ordinarily be called on to do for a sin. And this was a time and a place where your sins were subject to like you were basically if you transgressed against the church, they had some they had authority to levy punishments against you. Like right. there would be temporal punishments uh and and uh and uh 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 i i can't think of the word now i, ju- I just used it a second ago penances <laughs> thank you okay i just thanked myself penance um so what the pardon when you bought a pardon what you were doing was almost like posting bail you were mm-hmm. buying your way out of having to do these these sort of acts of contrition and penance in this life but your sin was still on your soul that was still, this was only, you know, this was only so you didn't have to do whatever kind of, pen, you know, penance work you were called on to do in this life. Whatever was going on with your soul was still <laughs> to do with God. But of course, you can see how it's very, very easy to lose that fine distinction. Right. And so many, many of these pardon peddlers were uh, basically, and, and even then, like, I, I think the this, this pardon peddler specifically in Chaucer, he's, he's a rogue pardon peddler. He's not, he's not doing this in support of the campaign to re-roof the tiles or, you know, redo the, the tile, uh, the roof tiles of, you know, Canterbury Cathedral or anything. He's just out there wildcat. Yeah. And, and he, the, you know, for the, for the common people, you know, uh, it, it's, it's easy to lose that distinction between, okay, well, this is only pardoning you for the part of your punishment, which will take place here on, in this world. You are still, you know, your soul will still have to answer for, you know, X, Y, Z. It's very easy for you to start saying, Hey, you don't want to burn in hell, do you? Buy this. <laughs> and and people would take him up on it because it was his partner in specific. You know, like he said, like he's he's very he's he's he presents the physical mold of of being very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and in the Middle Ages, that was a marker of moral superiority. Yeah. I mean, there was that kind of like, look, if if a thing if God made a thing beautiful, that must be because it's good. Mm-hmm. It was a very kind of straightforward kind of moral calculus to make, which, of course, people had always, you know, there were some people for it and some people opposed to it. Uh, Chaucer is, is, of course, obviously pushing back against that with right. his whole character, the partner, because his whole prologue, he basically explains his con. Yeah. He, he pulls everyone around. He's like, hey, guys, look, get a load of this. I'm going to tell you all about how I con everybody because this is all hokum. Don't believe a bit of it. And the, not only does he sell pardons, but he also sells relics. Oh, yeah. And relics are, again, this is, I'm not enough of a medievalist to really truly get into what relics meant to these people, but they were extremely important. And, 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 and again, there's, there's all kinds of theological, uh, you know, if you, if you're just reading, you know, sort of the, the theologians of the time, then there's, there's, there's all very spiritual, metaphorical and allegorical things behind relics and their veneration. But for the common people, it really was it was magic amulets. Yeah, basically yeah, is yeah. what this is. Like he's he's selling, like you know he'll talk about like, uh, um, like one of the one of the uh, relics he's selling or, or relics or whatever is is supposed to be like a, a, a saint's shoulder bone that if you <laughs> if you you know if you rub it 
uh, like heat it over water, run water over it, and then pour that water in, into an animal's mouth. It'll cure scabies or something right. on the animal. <laughs> like, yeah, like he's basically like, uh, and, and it's and it's a sheep's bone. Like it's not even yeah, human yeah, yeah. bone. It's just like, it's, yeah, you know, just tell him it's Saint Eleutherius. You know, who cares? Yeah, and I mean, he's he's a con, and what what? All right, this is what I find really really eerie is mm. he he tells. How he preaches, he says, "Good, uh, good men and women, a thing I, uh, I warn you: if any white be in this church now that hath done sin horrible, that he dar not for shame of it shriven be, or any woman be she young or old that hath emoked her husband Cokewold, switch folk shall have no power, nay no grace to offer unto my relics in this place. And whoso findeth him out of switch blame, he will come up and offer a God's name." And I assoil him by the authority which that by Bulla he granted was me. Um, yeah, listen, I'm going to offer these for sale, but if you send or anything like that, don't even bother uh, coming up to me because it's just not going to work. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's he's sort of bullying uh, everyone that listens to him into coming up. Well, I, I, I don't want to look like... I have sinned, right. so I better go buy something. It's it's genius, really. I mean, honestly, like the scam is just terrific. Oh uh, yeah, and and it's it's so, you know, I guess to break character a little bit. I, I've been meditating more and more on the danger of rhetoric, on mm -hmm. the danger of of um, speaking certain ways or inciting uh, guilt and violence just through language, and and. He, he spreads evil. Mm -hmm. he, he really, really does. We'll get to this when we get to, to Milton, because one of the things that Milton diagnoses, and, and he draws it from Shakespeare, he draws it from Iago, is that evil must um, contaminate. It's like a virus. It must get around. <clears throat> and the partner in, in doing this inspires evil in others. Uh, it, it happens later on. Um, if anyone steps up to debate him and say, well, listen, you're, you're full of shit. Uh, I'm another cleric and I can take you down. He says, and some for being glory and some for hate. Uh, for one, I dare none other ways debate. Then will I sting him with my tongue smarter in preaching so that he shall not asterta to be defamed falsely if that he hath trespassed to my brother nor to me. For though I tell not his proper name, men shall well know that it is the same by signs and by other circumstances. Yeah. Um, I'll hint, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just enough to uh, be able to assume that you know who this is that I'm talking about, who's such an evil, bad, awful person. Yeah. But I won't defame them outright. But, you know, some people say that there are some people like this. Right. And it leads to the creation of suspicion. It, he's sort of doing in mass what Iago does with Othello, makes him suspicious, plants the idea in your head so that you get seduced into the the – the hatred of someone else. Mm -hmm. it, 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 that's what I mean. <laughs> the partner horrifies me. Yeah. And the he's, partner really scares me. He's yeah. Cause he, he is that master of rhetoric and, and, and manipulation. And one of the, one of the interesting elements of that, um, the, toward the end of his prologue, where he said, where he's talking, where he's talking about the kind of preaching he, he does that, you know, brings in the money when people come and buy these, you know, chintzy amulets is, is when he said, um, and then I give them lots of examples. This is from, from my translation, which was uh, translated yeah. by uh, Bertrand Raphael. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah. The modern library classic edition. Uh, where he says, um, and then I give them lots of examples drawn from ancient stories told us long ago. Ignorant people like their stories old. 
being things they can understand and take hold of. And that really rang a bell for me when he says ignorant people like their stories old. And just because like you're, it's, it's true that I think, you know, for a lot of people, the, the, the sort of, uh, the ancient provenance of a story lends it credence. And, and you see this and you see it instantly, uh, because that's toward the end of the, um, the partner's prologue. And then he begins his tale, which is sort of, uh, which begins in talking about, uh, this sort of a corrupt town in Flanders, which, which at the time was the great, which at the time was the great boom area of Northwestern Europe. Um, this was this was sort of the the incipient sort of proto industry of uh, textile weaving. There's a lot of uh, mercantile activity, um, mm-hmm. so this would have been sort of the uh, the the you know the corrupt Babylon, the Wall Street of of, uh, <laughs> of that day and age. Um, but he's you know sort of you know explaining just how just how corrupt they all were, and he keeps using uh, he keeps using examples from the Bible. He keeps using yeah. sort of illustrations from the Bible, but also from sort of the classical past with, uh, you know, talking about sobriety being the way to go. And he mentions how, consider Attila, the greatest of conquerors, dead in his sleep in shame and sad dishonor, bleeding from the nose and drunkenness. Um, so he's not only calling on the, the religious ancient uh, stories for authority, but also the sort of the, the secular history we might also call it. Um, Absolutely. But it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, and the, 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 the peddlers, uh, Tale itself is is uh, basically like the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, uh, it's, it, you know. it's a no. It's 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 one of the simplest stories in there. It's designed to be simple because the people he cheats are simple. Um, I tell a good story. It, uh, three you know rough and scruffy dudes meet at a tavern. They hear about this guy Death, uh, who's killing everybody. Uh, they decide, you know, in their drunkenness, that they want to go find Death and kill him because yeah. he's killing everybody. Show him what for? Yeah, yeah. So they find some old man. It's the typical harbinger uh, who tells them, "Go out under that tree and you'll find Death." Uh, they go under the tree and find a dead dude with tons of money. Uh, they see the money and they want to split it up, but they. Um, begin to get suspicious of each other so they need supplies and one guy goes back to town to get wine for him while the other two sit and wait so the two are sitting and plotting and waiting and they're going to um instead of splitting it three ways they want to split it two ways and they're going to kill the guy who brings up the wine but the guy who got the wine says i'm not going to split it with anyone i'm going to poison the wine so he brings the wine they kill him then they drink the wine then they all die and they found death the end right (laughs) (laughs) it's it doesn't take a genius to suss out the meaning of that one, right? You know, it's which it just which just goes you know feeds right into just the sheer odiousness of the partner because he is absolutely the most uh, just filled with cupidity of all of these pilgrims. And, you know, he is the the man most driven by evil and lust for gold and the willingness to screw other people for it, screw over other people for it, and he's going to sit here and tell us this morality tale. Well, that's a, he says, I'm the best one to tell a morality tale because I'm the most immoral one. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, but, there was, uh, there was, uh, um, but there's another element about the partner that I, I wanted to uh, mention a little bit about, which I think is a really interesting wrinkle in, in sort of the – and, and I, I wonder what Chaucer was getting at. And this is one of the things I wish I knew more about. Something that jumped out at me mm-hmm. when I was reading uh, the partner's material 
is that uh, he'll he'll say there's a few times where he'll say something like uh, like here we go. Um, uh, uh, but listen, gentlemen, one word I pray. Please note that all the greatest deeds I say, recording victories in the testaments through God's own actions, he is he the omnipotent, took place in abstinence and constant prayer. Go read the Bible. For sure, you'll find that there. Oh. This guy's speaking in English, talking to a group of people, uh, among whom there are a number of church people who would be expected to be able to read Latin, but he's telling them all, and this is, remember, his sort of, he's in his mode of pre-prepared speech that he would go around and tell people about, and he's saying, go read the Bible. This, oh, this, exactly, this was a very touchy subject at the time, <laughs> because people were getting burned alive about that in England. This was, uh, and this is what I, I mentioned earlier, kind of it's pre-Reformation, but this is during a time of what I would call proto-Reformation. Mm-hmm. And you had a group of people active in England at the time called Lollards. Uh, and what was Lollardy? What were these people up to? Well, they were passing around transcripts. They were passing around translations of Holy Scripture into the vernacular English so that people, common people, Non, non-educated people could read for themselves, or educated enough that they could read English, but not Latin. They could read for themselves. These, this new petty bourgeoisie, you know, this, these mm-hmm. up and coming, um, you know, this new class. And this was, it's, it's a bit of a complicated history because the, the church wasn't necessarily against translating holy texts into other languages. That had been approved a few times. Like there was like the, uh, uh, the Catholic Church approved the translation of the scriptures into uh, Slavonic, Old Church Slavonic, um, mm. in uh, what is today the Czech Republic and Slovakia. There were a number of kind of more or less approved translations, but translations into the vernacular itself were much more frowned upon. And not necessarily from any standpoint of like, it's it's interesting to get into the, like the motivations, but mostly what the, the, the nervousness was about protecting the integrity of interpretation. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. the church had the correct interpretation of these texts. And if we just translate the words, will are we really able to translate the meaning? Right. And without right, the right. proper interpretive and without the proper interpretive hermeneutic that we the church have and that we apply to this text, usually like the, the, the Vulgate of St. Jerome, um, you know, the Latin translation, it, it you know, it, it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous to put holy scripture out there. Where any Yahoo can read it, but not understand it, but thinks he understands it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I mean, the church was right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you get the partner. Because you get the partner. Exactly. You get the partner. And you get, and you get, you know, he's able to, to sort of bamboozle these people. And, but he can bamboozle them and then also point out, like, hey, it says you're in black and white. You know, I mean, I, here's the holy words and we can understand them. And so it's interesting that the the partner is uh and and that's kind of the interesting nature of religious authority at this time and how it's starting to become fractured and and really and really broken um yeah and this is also the time uh, i believe this is during the uh what's referred to as the babylonian captivity of the papacy yeah where there were competing popes there was the the (laughs) right the, the today today's church traces itself back the legitimate pope was in avignon in southern France at this time, where a pretender was in St. Peter's in Rome. And, you know, and local dioceses would declare for one or the other, and it was all a big mess. And 
but you can see this kind of fracturing of religious authority. The partner is his his livelihood relies on people assuming the authority of the church to remit their sins. But he's also gone rogue. He doesn't have the authority of the church to do this. And furthermore, he's engaging in lollardy by asking people <laughs> to read the text themselves, which would have been absolutely tempt, which would have been absolutely opposed by the church. And yet, it's 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 it goes. Oh, I, I yeah. I, it's 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 complicated. It's, the, it's the, very complicated. The, the text is complicated, <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. I wish I knew more about it. Yeah, but um, the, yeah, yeah, we can, one of the yeah. Oh, sorry, one of the things. No, that, that was fantastic, and and you know that's something that I hadn't considered. But this is why I'm glad you're with me. <laughs> uh, the other thing that um, you know, I, I I think that 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 anti-clericalism leads us more or less into the wife of Bath. Mm-hmm. But before we get there. Uh, I do want to talk a, a little bit about how to read the partner. Um, there's something very, very strange happens at the end of his story. He finishes the story. It's a simple story. And then he turns he, – he basically tells everyone, look, I, this is how my con works. I con you by doing this. I set it up like this. None of my relics are, are worth anything. It's all nonsense. Uh, my pardons don't even actually do anything. Uh, so I finished up my tale – and then he goes right into his spiel. He says, um, you know, does anybody want to buy a pardon? And he begins to pick on Harry Bailey, the host. He says, uh, um, I read that our host uh, here shall begin, for he is most enveloped in sin. Come forth, sir host, and offer first a nun, and thou shalt kiss the relics ever at on. Ye for a groat, unbuckle anon thy purse. All right, so first, um, he's, he's, he's gone back to his old tricks, and he's trying to bully the host into um, buying one of the relics. Two, there's this weird kind of sexual connotation to the thing, unbuckle your purse. Purse was another, um, you know, this goes back to the wallet on his cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, purse was another uh, medieval euphemism for for scrotum. Uh, it comes all up in in the Wife of Bath's Tale, but he basically says, "Come kiss my relics and open your own purse." I mean, there's the the sexual connotation to that. He's bullying Harry Bailey into trying to you know into to spending money, basically saying, "You're the most corrupt among us all." Well, wait a minute. No, he's not. <laughs> right. Um, you just showed us that you were. Uh, and then Harry Bailey gets upset. Nay, nay, quad he, done have I Christ's curse. Let be, quad he, uh, it shall not be so thee. Uh, thou wilt make me kiss thine own old breach and swear it were a relic of a saint. So you'd make me kiss your your the 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 butt of your pants and say it was a saint's relics. Uh, were thy fundament um, de paint. But by the croix which that St. Elaine fond, I will to have thy cullions in my hand instead of relics or of sanctuary. Let cut him off. I will then thee help him carry that they shall be shrined in an august turd. So you know what? I'll make some new relics. I'll cut off your balls mm-hmm. and smash them up in hog shit. And then we'll place them in the church. And that'll be... Yeah, yeah. so... There's this real, this real tension between the two of them. It's, it's this threat. It's this, you know, anger, like really bursts out. And then the knight steps in and says, guys, guys, calm down. Everything's okay. Um, uh, make friends again. And they kiss and make up and everybody laughs. Yeah. I, I don't know how to read this. This is, I think, this I, is, I, yeah, this is absolutely one of those moments where we're like, do, 
is Chaucer just strange or do we just not know enough to really understand it? Because you're right. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's jarring. Yeah. And it feels like humans would not behave in such a way, but Hey, at the same time, like, uh, you know, the, the, the human tapestry is enormous and varied. <laughs> humans behave in all manner of ways that I, I cannot imagine, uh, just come up with. So, yeah. you know, I'll give it to you, Chaucer. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you, but yeah, you're right. It's a very, it's a very odd moment. And, and, and if nothing else, it at least strikes a note of, it, it reminds us by striking a note of alienness that the past is a foreign country, big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big absolutely. time. No matter how absolutely. much, no matter how much we see ourselves in it, and we can, and, and in these characters, we can. You know, because we un- we can see them and be like, they're humans like us. You know, they, they have these motivations and thoughts, but at the same time, like, wow, they are really they they are living in an, an entirely different circumstances and with it with a, a vastly vastly different understanding of the world and their place in it. Exactly. Well, I guess that gets us, uh, you know, we'll finish up with a, a brief look at the Wife of Bath's prologue and tale. Yeah. And um, this gets back into the the anti-clericalness. You know, we were talking beforehand that she comes very, very close to making a, a really blasphemous statement <laughs> or, 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 or a really dangerous statement, but moves away from it because um, – Chaucer in jams a line. Uh, experience, though none authority, were in this world. It is right enough for me to speak of woe that is in marriage. For luring sith I twil- uh, twelfth year was of age, thong to, God, thong to be God that his eternal in life, husbands at church door, I have had five. Um, you know, the, I, I think what's striking immediately is that since she was 12, she's been married five times. But let's go back to that first line. What exactly does she say? Um, she basically says that experience is the authority. Mm-hmm. She she makes a bold empiricist claim. <laughs> yes, she does. In a time in which dogma was the right. order of the day, right? And that, I mean, that's what strikes me. She makes a bold uh, empirical claim, but then switches. So it's about. No, no, just about marriage. Right, right, right. I think right. that's the safety valve that, yeah. that Chaucer throws in there. But this this gets into the wife of Bath, and and one of the questions I always have of that have about it is this a feminist text? Mm-hmm. It, it's very very difficult to ascribe our understanding of gender and the relations between gender to you know, another time period, as you just said, the past is another country, but there's this push and pull within this text, which really seems like something is speaking out. And it's, you know? it's very interesting that if, if nothing else, it, it's clear that Chaucer made, he, he, he made a real, I feel a, a real genuine effort to imagine himself in the position of womankind and the, and the way that they, you know, were treated and, and the way marriage was conceived of for them. And I, I think as an imaginative exercise, he really was, he really was like trying to put himself in the shoes of a woman. And, yeah. and I think that comes through in the text. And I, you know, it, it would be, it would be wonderful if we had more autobiographical text from, you know, a, a, a an, an, you know, an earthy woman of the time. I mean, most, of, <laughs> most, most of the writings that we do have from women from the middle ages are necessarily, well, you know, they'd have to be educated. So they would have to be in the church. So they would have to be, nuns and prioresses or mm-hmm. otherwise sort of uh, removed from domestic life uh, right. in, in that instance. So there's really not a lot we can compare it to 
to see how close Chaucer might get to a woman's perspective. And again, like, are, are we able to suss that out properly? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that we are. And, and then at the same time, we have the, um, the fact that it's cur- like, it, I don't want to say curtailed, but it's, it's within the context of the, the sort of embodiment of, the old vices, mm-hmm. lust, like she is sort of the embodiment of that, that, that vice, but it's almost as if the parameters of the stereotype give him room to, um, really make it vibrant and really make it three dimensional in mm-hmm. this, this interesting, weird way. Uh, you know, what, what's really fascinating about the wife of Bath is that she gives, uh, a, a, a fantastic counterclaim to, or, or a counter argument to any claim that women should be chased, mm-hmm. uh, or that virginity is to be prized. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's the that's really interesting. Is that the uh, I, I know I, I will probably be deploying this phrase uh, and completely not not very usefully. But uh, when I was reading it, I, I I was really struck by it's a very sex positive presentation. Yeah, because yeah. she's very much like, look, I love getting down. I do. And men, you know, men do too. My husbands have, and uh, that's part of what marriage is all about. I have demanded it of my husbands because I really like it. And I'm really, you know, I know that I want it. I know that I am worth it. And yeah, like all, all you churchmen out there, like screw off. Because she actually, she, yeah. does, she makes it, she makes a theological argument for it. Like, look, God yeah. gave us these parts. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, the, these are my two favorite parts. Virginity is greet perfection and continence eke with devotion. But Christ, that of perfection is well, a bad, not every white. He should go sell all that he had and give it to the poor and in switch wise follow him in his four. Look, Christ said, be as perfect as possible, but not everyone has to sell everything and go out, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I'll be as perfect as I can be, but yeah, come on. He spoke to him that will live perfectly. And loitering's by your leave, that am not I. I will bestow the flower of all mine age and the accent and fruit of marriage. Tell me also to what conclusion were members made of generation and of so parfit ways uh, a right ye wrought. Trusteth right well they were not made for naught. Glaws who so wool uh, and say both up and down that they were maked for purgation of urine and are both things smaller were eke to know a female from a male. And for noon other cause, say ye no? <laughs> um, so, so were our organs of generation just made for um, excreting? Well, then why should we have male and female anyway? Yeah. <laughs> so up the genitals, you know, up for the genitals, uh, up for penises and vaginas. Uh, they're fantastic things. Uh, God made them and God made us as perfect as he possibly could. So to say that the genitals are bad is to say that God messed up. Right. And, and, that's, <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a, it's marvelous. It's, it's a marvelous yeah. argument and it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's one of those. It, it's one, honestly, that uh, a few you know medieval theologians had to had to wrestle with. Uh, you know, in a more formalized content uh, context, yeah. but uh, but yeah, I mean, the fact that Chaucer is is putting that kind of argument in the you know in, in the mouth of this woman who, um, and and it would have and honestly, would she would have been mildly scandalous just for the fact that she had been married so many times. Yeah, and not yeah. necessarily that. It would have been scandals for a woman to get remarried, but I, I believe at this time, I know in the, in the Orthodox Church at this time that three was the limit. Yep. Like if you had, like if you were married three times and each time the, you know, your spouse died, 
after the third one, like, okay, you're just on your own because that's just getting a little greedy after that. Um, <laughs> and I imagine there probably would have been either a custom or, or maybe a similar sort of canon law element in the, in the Western church at this time. But yeah. and either way, it would have been sort of like looked askance, like, uh, you know, and this is sort of the wife's, it's her apology, you know, to, and sort of yeah, the te- in, the, in the technical sense of apology, like she's making an explanation. But w- one of my favorite elements of the, of the wife's prologue is that she, and, and I think this is, this is sort of one of the passages that I think makes the, makes the strongest claim for being a feminist text, where she goes on a very, on a very long sort of extended, uh, yeah, sort of an extended exploration of the fact that nothing a woman ever does is good and correct. That no matter, no matter who she is or no matter, you know, whether she's pretty or ugly, she will be insulted by men and accused of, you know, if she's pretty, she'll be accused of being a tease. If she's ugly, she'll be accused of being, you know, a lusty, you know, right. a, a lusty one. She won't leave the men alone. If she's rich, she'll be accused of, uh, of, you know, being haughty. If she's poor, she'll be accused of being a gold digger. If, you know, like no matter what, no matter what circumstances a woman is in, the men around her will insult her and find fault with her for it. And that was really powerful. I thought that was, um, yeah, that was really, really cool. Yeah. And there's, there's another part, you know, sorry, the, the, the point of her whole prologue is, um, I want power in the marriage. What Mm -hmm. I say should go and so on and so forth. And she ends up, uh, at the, at the end of it, she's describing all five of her husbands and she describes her last husband who, you know, beat her kind of mercilessly, but, uh, had this whole, uh, I, I don't mean to laugh at that. I, I'm, it, it's, it's really gruesome. They treat it funny, which I thought was, yeah. you know, I, or, or it seems like he's trying to treat it comedically, but the pathos comes through. Or at least it did for me. I, I think it almost feels like he's trying to let the wife exhibit some gallows humor about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, the, yeah, so he's got this giant stack of um, basically misogynistic medieval texts, mm-hmm. uh, example after example after example of how women are, are bad and evil and lead to sin. And she has this line in there where she basically says, well, you know, did a woman ever get a chance to write a book? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's that turn that that it comes close, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of what, what you say, it comes close to being a feminist test. It, I, I think it's within the scope of the vice, you know, and, and I'm not entirely certain how this would have been read. I, I still think that medieval misogyny would have been extraordinarily threatened mm-hmm. by a woman speaking up like this. And I, 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 I you know, one more time, I know I don't know enough. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there's something back here that's going to sort of contain that in some way. But, or I, I suspect that there is, but she still gets to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this other moment, and and this is one that I paid attention to mostly because Bloom makes hay of it. But I, I think he's kind of right that you see in the wife of Bath um, self consciousness. Mm-hmm. It, it's this moment where she says, "But Lord Christ, one that it remembereth me upon my youth and on my jollity." It tickleth me about mine heart wrote. Unto this day it doth mine heart boat that I have had my world as in my time, but age, alas, that wool, all wool, in benign, uh, hath me bereft my beauty and my pith. Let go, farewell. The devil go therewith. The flower is gone, there is no more to tell. The bran is 
as I best can, now must I sell. But yet to be right, Mary, will I fond? Now will I tell it of my fourth husband? Mm -hmm. She has this moment of realization where she's like, I'm old now. Uh, I'm not as pretty as I used to be. I have to do what I can. I get sad because I think of lost time. There, there's a remembrance or, or, or an acknowledgement that um, something has passed. And that gives her a little bit more depth than you might have found in, you know, certainly other medieval allegories. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in, other, in any other medieval vice. You know? Right, right. And, and certainly from any other sort of woman in literature. Yeah, I, I, I would think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or woman, absolutely. woman character, we should say, because uh, it's, yeah. it's still a man writing her, but he's he's, he's yeah. at least attempting a kind of <laughs> uh, a kind of a, a, a realistic woman in, in, in a lot in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so then we have her tale, which is uh, a romance. Um, it, it, it's this weird version of a chivalric romance. And in my poking around, uh, that, that was one of the things that scholars have kind of been curious about. Why did Chaucer not write a romance? Uh, or, or hmm. in the Canterbury right. Tales, why did he not take on that genre when he took on so many other genres? Um, he seems to keep the romance at arm's length. And, uh, you know, it, it's a weird romance because, you know, it starts off with a knight basically just seeing some girl on the side of the road, raping her, and then being arrested for it. it I mean, it, the, the, the sexual violence is so offhand, it, it really took me aback. Mm -hmm. But um, he's arrested and sentenced to die, but then the queen intervenes and says, <clears throat> I'll give you a chance. You have one year to figure out if you can answer my riddle. You have, you, you have one year to figure out my riddle, and if you can answer it, then you'll you'll live. I'll let you live. And the riddle is, what do women want? <laughs> and so he goes out searching the world. What is it that women want? And he comes to this and he comes to that. And eventually he meets this old crone who tells him, look, if you promise to marry me, uh, I'll tell you what women want. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. And he takes her back to the kingdom and says, I know what women want. They want control in marriage. And the queen says, yep. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. He gets to live, but he has to marry this old crone and he does. And he's all put off, but she says, come to bed. And he says, no, I can't perform because you're hideous. And she says, well, uh, if you don't do it, then I'll get the marriage annulled. And he says, okay, fine. And so he goes to bed and kisses her and begins to perform. And she turns into a beautiful woman. She was an enchantress the whole time. He ends up with a beautiful wife and everyone ends up happy. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> and this that might be the moment where that's what I'm saying in in Renaissance studies or, or sorry Elizabethan Jacobean there is no Renaissance in Elizabethan Jacobean <laughs> studies um, there there's I think for 20 years this um, controversy raged is a text um, contained or is it subversive hmm. like is there some kind of mechanism which allows it to um, sort of be transmitted because it's uh, socially contained, right? 
or is it trying to undermine official dogmatic power? Yeah. Right. And my argument was always it's got it's always got to be both. You can yeah, only go yeah. so far, but there were official censors who would shut you down and throw you in jail or kill you. Yeah. So you know, it's like pragmatically, it can only go so far. Um, that that binary argument doesn't really do much for me. But I think if you wanted to apply some of that to this text, there seems to be something in the tail which contains that energy mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that that, yeah. that puts it back into form that that at least to me um, seems as if it's um, putting up a bulwark against the full uh, anti-misogynistic expression if we can say it's an right because it, yeah you're right because the uh, you know the, the upshot at the end of all of it is that a man is is rewarded like a, a man yeah. ends up doing fine <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> And you're right. That kind of like that helps. Uh, uh, that helps. Sorry about that. A, a cat just ran across my recording setup. Um, oh, that's okay. But yeah, that that sort of helps. Uh, you're right. It helps contain some of the subversion. That helps. Uh, I, I guess that's sort of what, exactly. It, it walls it in. Like you know, maybe yeah. it's a little. Maybe it's a little further afield than uh, than we're used to. But at least it's you know it, it's within the realm of acceptability almost. Yeah. 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 So anyway, all right. Well, I, I think that brings us to the end of what we wanted to do with the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel relatively satisfied that I sounded at least somewhat intelligible. Uh, <laughs> well, absolutely, very intelligible. And the thing is, it's, uh, you know, and we only we of course only scratched the surface because we were only talking about you know just just a couple of of the uh, the elements in there. So if any of this sounded interesting to you. Please, please go read, find, find a translation of Canterbury Tales, read it. It's not, you won't regret it. I think for a lot of people, it's, it there, maybe you'll have memories of being bored in high school with it or something, <laughs> but no, like this is really, it's such a, it's such a lively text. It's such a richly arch and ironic text yeah. that it's, it's a real joy to read because you can, you can almost see Chaucer like rolling his eyes when he you know, talks about some pompous ass this way or whatnot. And it's really great. Like it's very, he was clearly, clearly a very perceptive dude. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and it really shines through in the language. Uh, it was a, it was a real joy to read, uh, to read these, uh, these, uh, these, uh, these pieces. Well, fantastic. So next month we're going to meet back here and we've, we've decided to do, uh, I guess as close as we'll ever do to a deep dive on Dante. Uh, we're, we're breaking that up into three pieces. Uh, we're going to start with the Inferno and then read the Purgatorio the following month and then finish with the Paradiso. Mm -hmm. Because, um, I, I think it does a disservice to Dante just to focus on the Inferno because the two other pieces are, are different and fascinating in their own right. Yeah. Um, so we're going to meet back in about a month and start in on the Inferno and, uh, I guess that's about it for Chaucer for right now. <laughs> yeah, um, this was a, 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 a it was a wonderful a wonderful discussion, Claude. Thank you. <laughs> it, was a, it really is like I you know I, I in in reading I picked up on a on a lot more than I remembered, and also with uh, a lot of the sort of a, a perspective uh, that I got from encountering the text with you, I I, I appreciate and, and enjoy the Canterbury Tales more than I ever thought I might. Well, thank you so much for bringing so much to the table. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the history and theology as, as well as you, and I, <laughs> I, I love to dive in. Um, I also want to thank uh, Josh Hollis, who's going to be editing this. He's our producer. He's putting mm-hmm. this all together. Uh, he's got a lot of work ahead of him. 
but yes, um, Hall- Hallas for Hollis, as we like to say. <laughs> exactly. He's a gentleman and a scholar, <laughs> and I'm eternally grateful for his help. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Josh. And uh, yeah, I'll see you in a month. We'll talk about hell. <laughs> When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.